Hello, I am your host, Mike Gelb, and welcome to The Consumer VC, where we're going to be diving into the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Our guest today is Samit Shah, Portfolio Support Associate at Swift Arc Ventures. Swift Arc Ventures is an early and growth stage venture capital firm, mainly focused on North American-based consumer brands making major economic and social disruptions. Prior to Swift Arc, Samit was a principal at Brand Foundry Ventures and has coached hundreds of founders on their investor decks and fundraising strategies. I had so much fun chatting with Samit as we discussed the fourth generation of retail, what's wrong with venture capital, and his due diligence process. I like to thank Samit personally as well, for he's been vital to the growth of this podcast. So without further ado, here's Samit. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast and uh, and for being up for having a chat. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well, Mike. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. Very well. So what attracted you to head into venture capital and what made you switch your focus at university from biomedical engineering? Yeah, so it's funny you mentioned that. Uh, besides the fact that it has a, a serious number of syllables, um, I graduated from Columbia in 08 as a biomedical engineer focusing in the world of biomechanics. Um, basically get to really tinker with the world of medicine um, on a mechanical standpoint to it. But honestly, what's also so crazy about the world of venture for me is that I've managed to get into it by accident twice now. My first job was actually in the consulting world within the private equity space of it. And I was there for about five years at a small shop um, that was hiring at Columbia in, in 2008. Now, again, this is 2008 from it all, and it's run and operated, and the entire team comprises uh, core engineers, so mechanical, biomedical, civil, electrical, et cetera, and was really intrigued about what they were working through with the actual hands-on work of things on the companies. So I ended up joining the company, Gotham Consulting Partners, in mid-2008, started working with a few companies, actually a bunch of consumer companies uh, that are very well-known and owned by major private equity firms, and of course, later that year, a giant whirlwind and storm of, of epic proportions happens in the financial crisis. And we went from like doing a lot of more operations focused work to a lot of just cost-effective reduction strategies, but still working and helping to build these companies up from there. So I spent two years doing that for, uh, on the operations side of things, and then moved over once the worst of the crisis was coming through in 2011 to run business development for the firm. Uh, really learning the opportunity to understand how a lot of these private equity executives were thinking and working, how they were looking at companies, what they were look, needing help for, and really Im, uh, implanting a lot of our work of actually changing companies for the better, for their futures, and actually, of course, making a better return, but really making stronger, more sustainable businesses. And more and more over time, I started working with a lot of consumer companies. So nutraceuticals businesses, the guys that make like the gummy vitamins, the guys that make the cookie cakes, juice co-packers, various beauty companies. And it was really interesting to see the number of moving parts that came from there as I was transitioning from the world of medicine and healthcare and biotech and pharma that I got from the BME world to this world of consumer. During that time frame, I got introduced through a few colleagues uh, as I was spending more time in biz dev to a guy named Mike Duda. So Mike was running at the time a hybrid agency and venture capital firm called Consigliere Brand Capital, which is now called Bullish, uh, which is now over located in the Chinatown section of New York that he runs, same concept as well. 
and he introduced me to one of his LPs, an, an angel investor by the name of Andrew Mitchell. This was 2011, um, as I was pushing more into the biz dev world. And he and I just hit it off in terms of what he was working through, what he was looking at in the world of beauty. He was early investor in companies like Peloton, Warby Parker, Harry's, Chloe and Isabel, Birchbox. And we stayed in touch across some things. 2013, I moved over to the startup world and reconnected with Andrew in the beginning of 2014 just to offer startups uh, that he may want to look at. But then what I learned is that he was actually um, closing out the final stages to launch Brand Foundry and had asked me, would you like to join me as a senior associate? So besides the fact that he admired, I guess, the hustle and drive that I was pushing from it, um, or whatever he thought was great in me, um, I ended up helping him and launch it from day one in March of 2014. So Brand Foundry is a early stage consumer venture capital firm um, based in New York and Austin. And uh, during that time, I was there for three years, three and a half years, sorry, investing in over 20 companies. So we sourced and led various companies like Lola, The Wing, Allbirds, Rockets of Awesome, The Sill, Koyo, so on and so forth. There's uh, Cotopaxi and so on and so forth. Invested in really strong uh, consumer product businesses and leading the seed rounds for a bunch of them as well. In August of 2017, I stepped away mostly due to my own mental health. I was spending a lot of my own time uh, working with other people, taking care of others, but not actually spending enough time to take care of myself. And so at the end of every fundraising cycle, uh, I would just be basically a shell of, of a broken human. And I decided to step away from that world and spent the next two years just doing various freelance work, helping doing business development, partnership strategy work for various agencies, startups, and brands, which was, I got to say, has is, been an absolute fun time. And the freelance world is a very interesting space to be. But um, last October, through a few mutual friends, I got introduced to a guy named Sid Jawahar. So Sid runs a global hedge fund in Austin called Swift Dark Capital. And what was supposed to be just a conversation on what was going on in the world of consumer turned out to be two hours of just jamming on what was going on in consumer venture capital. Was there an opportunity to build a new shop from there? And while I was more interested in potentially launching a fund of my own at the time, Sid had basically sat down with me and said, like, we're looking to launch a new early stage venture division of SwiftArk and SwiftArk Ventures, which would be uh, mutually exclusive from Capital, but part of the SwiftArk group. One thing led to another, I started talking with a bunch of our partners, and we unofficially launched in the summer of 2019 and officially launch, have officially launched this first quarter of 2020. Congrats. I know you guys officially launched in first quarter of 2020. So that's really exciting. Congratulations on that. I also love the fact that you talked a bit about uh, that you were self-aware when you stepped away from venture capital to focus on your health. I think that's really, really important. You highlighted about us with our ventures. What is your thesis or area of focus? I understand that it's consumer, but what are, what are I guess, specific verticals that, that you're focused on? So we are focusing 90% of our fund in the world of consumer products. So tangible products across the world of health, beauty, wellness, food and beverage, CPG, and apparel and accessories with a small percentage focusing in the world of consumer technology. But what really matters to us is what we're calling the fourth wave of retail in contextual commerce. When you think about the relationships between the brand and the consumer is that there are really these three past waves um, that have had their own limitations to it. When you look at the first wave, it's brick and mortar. You have your typical shopkeeper uh, working with their customers. This is intimate relationship that they've had 
um, in their spaces. You have this genuine, intimate reliance on product and quality that was given to the customer. Now, problem is that you can't scale that very easily. We can't, at least for that time frame, we couldn't clone people. Um, so there is a, a limitation to the world of brick and mortar. Wave two was e-commerce, where you have the opportunity to reach to so many different networks, so many different spaces, uh, without the need of a offline footprint. The problem is it's very convenience-driven, and of course, the king of the hill when it comes to e-commerce at this point right now is Amazon or Alibaba, so on and so forth. We don't have enough of a true relationship that uh, exists on a digital level. There are some exceptions, of course, with some of the GTC startups these days, but at the same time, it's as many of them have learned, you have to find that right balance between online and offline which leads us to the third wave, which is omni-channel. Now, the problem with omni-channel that's always existed is many major brands have forced their online and offline divisions to work together to share customer data across it all, even though they may have conflicting ways of collecting and showcasing that data and utilizing it for their stronger advantages for satisfying their customers. As a result, you get these warring factions between the two. They just have everything, what was supposed to be a, a consistent relationship, basically break apart. So then when you think about this next wave, contextual commerce, the key word here is context. Context matters, and it's all about the customer's journey, where you enter online or offline, and each division has really a four-part strategy, whether it's the, of course, starting with the entry point into the space, whether it's entering a store or entering the website, where it's the perusal of the products, perusal of the spaces, and what, how of a natural level that is between the customer and the brand. The, uh, the time to purchase, which obviously is much quicker in e-commerce than it is for um, an offline, the trial of the product, and then the reviewing and feedback of the product itself. Those four stages are deeply connected across both channels, but what matters is that no matter where that customer does enter, you have a natural human-like experience that the brand is positioning to that person um, where he or she will feel welcomed, feel approached, and will be non-invasively building this profile of products they like, products they're buying, what preferences they're looking through, and is the most natural way possible for them to not just, of course, buy things from the store or buy things from the brand in the end, but consistently buy more, have that system of retention that's natural, and above everything else, honestly, have this sense of brand ambassadorship where they advocate the brand to themselves, to, them, to their friends, to people who matter to it. So you ultimately get the most powerful world of marketing, which is the word of mouth play to it. So when we're looking for those relationships, that's where contextual commerce matters. But then over time, you spend time with a brand on one channel, you'll see the transition to the other, whether it's like you're going to the store so often, it's like, hey, if I need some of those other products, I can then access it online. Or if I'm taking, if I'm buying this product online, and they've opened a store or opened a pop-up, I have the opportunity to test the products, meet the team, so on and so forth, to actually experience the brand in person, almost to like a tourism perspective to it. But it's everything between those relationships, those communities you also driven, that leads to that kind of brand advocacy that fuel the powers of contextual commerce. Do you have any um, examples? I mean, I love Warby. You think about Warby on how they've also learned to evolve as a brand both starting on online and with this level of convenience and quality that's always was assured with their, with their eyeglasses, but then over time they accidentally recognized retail where the Neil and Dave had consistently been getting emails from people saying like, hey, I realize you guys are in New York. Is there a showroom that I could come check out with it? And they set up this table, they set up some mirrors and they set up an opportunity in their office in Union Square and they had people coming through 
What was also really funny was places like Yelp were even providing reviews to people saying like, hey, this is a great brand. They also got this showroom. They're really cool people. You should check them out. And it was this natural level of transitioning onto that offline channel where to this day in with Warby Parker, you can even go to their headquarters and shop the sun, shop the glasses, shop the sunglasses, shop, of course, the contact lenses. They've just, they've just launched now with Scout. But there's this level of a true connection from it all. And I remember going to one of those showrooms in one of their original offices, I somehow managed to get lost and ended up in the area where all the, uh, uh, all the customer service associates were answering the phones. And that one of them just smiled and looked at me and said, um, are you lost? I was like, yes, I am very lost. I don't know how I got here to, got to hear from the showroom. But it was, that, it, was, it was that level of like, you just felt connected. Like you felt appreciated by that team from it all. Warby to me is like one of the best gold standards to it. I look to other brands like um, Glossier in terms of how they're doing it with their showrooms and their, and their, and their store now in New York and in London, so on and so forth. Outdoor Voices, of course, is another great example where Tyler built the first level of community in their store in Austin. And as they're about to launch, you know, close to a dozen stores total across the country, there's that level of community-driven ethos where no matter where you enter the store, you're connected. You feel part of that space to it. And you're, yes, there are digital tools like retargeting and digital, digital advertising models that will stay with you, but getting more and more target towards like what you actually want, what you actually are interested in. Do you also look in terms of uh, this fourth wave contextual commerce, are you also looking at what's happening in China and the social commerce explosion that's happening there with uh, Pindodo and looking how that might transform and have that deeper connection with customers over here in the US? I definitely am. What social, the world of social commerce has been very interesting to me, uh, what's going on in Asia. They're actually, what was also very interesting to me though is uh, there's a brand called Shop Shops, which is mobilizing in this world. And I had known the team very, very early on before they had gotten uh, venture backing led by Forerunner Ventures, Union Square Ventures, et cetera. Um, when they were actually a part of the cohort at XRC Labs, which is a consumer and retail accelerator uh, run by Parsons and Accenture Retail slash Kurt Salmon that I was the program director for the first cohort and ran partnerships for the second cohort. We had this opportunity to really just learn what was going on from the space. And the founders had taught us a lot about it, besides the fact that they were navigating a bunch of potential partnerships on that space. So it's definitely interesting. SwiftDark right now Swift Direct Ventures is right now focusing in North America, but social commerce to me is unique in that it is going beyond this like digital convenience driven ethos, but you're just centering about what is the ultimate profile. I mean, Apple is navigating this, Google is navigating this, Facebook is navigating this, where you're starting to see where your information naturally will connect to different areas from commerce to community to, to, to productivity, to phone and texting and everything. Some probably a little bit better than others when it comes to data privacy, but you know we're we're getting there. Hopefully, what is your advice for those that um, are still young, early D to C companies, and how they should think about eventually acquiring customers offline? It's all about building the community and just going back to what is the most natural way to it. How are people discovering your brand? What are people excited about when they peruse the? The products, when they peruse the story, when they peruse the sites themselves, or when they go to the shop itself and, and explore everything that you're selling, everything that you're showcasing to it. And what's the primary thing that comes out from them? Like what's their primary level of feedback of it? And then what's the secondary level? So like you take Harry's, for example, um, 
a primary function for people could be the fact of that, hey, this is the best razors on the planet. They are sharp, they work, they're durable, everything from there. Or the primary function could be, hey, these are made from this plant in Germany. I just want to definitely separate, like I want to uh, support this company that's completely vertically operated. That's one mindset. Or if you need to even look like a brand like Lola um, in the feminine hygiene world, they primary could be just the fact it's like, oh, they're 100% biodegradable. They're 100% organic tampons, pads, products, condoms. But then you also have the other primary where it could be, they just have this unapologetic level of, of content and messaging that is so frustrating. The fact that feminine hygiene care and products are taboo, they're taxed as a luxury good versus a, a necessity good. So how do we create, how do we take on things like the pink tax and the tampon tax? Like what you drive forward to it. So you really need to understand what are those primary levels of feedback that your customers are going through. And then what's the secondary level, almost like the surprise factor to it. And by building those communities doesn't mean that you have to raise a serious amount of capital or you have to hit a lot of these targets that tend to be talked about in the startup world. It's more about what amount of, what amount of time and what things you're doing naturally to connect with your customers and what they're really just what speaks to them over time, I guess. Like whether it's like a spending of their time on customer insights, but even just having as many different surveys and space and spaces where you can be spend as much face time in front of them, current and potential customers as well. For the Gen Z consumer who, you know, is really thinking about how they consume in terms of companies' values, for example, like eco-friendly products. If these types of D2C companies that are building these products for for in, in many ways for the Gen Z consumer that that have values, will this actually drive drive the actual gross margin up? Yeah, I definitely get that. I mean, the Gen Z consumer is definitely a lot more hyper aware about sourcing, about the transparency that brands and products are showcasing towards. And that we have to not just, of course, even think about that for the Gen Z consumer, but even just on a brand's mindset as well. I mean, when you have the CEO's round, the business roundtable, where you had hundreds of CEOs that were dedicating the purpose, dedicating to the messaging that brands should be, have uh, uh, another focus on purpose how purposeful of a brand they can be. Like they're being completely open and accountable towards uh, building more sustainable practices to producing, distributing, and selling their products, um, but also just standing for something bigger from this, especially for the fact that um, where climate change is a real conversation to have and human cultures and, and human consumption has really accelerated the, the harmful effects that we've been doing to this planet, we have an opportunity as customers as leaders, as executives, to not just be more aware, but to really commit to action and actionable purposes to things. Now, this generation, which has grown up 100% digitally on their learnings and education with Gen Z, they, I'm very, very excited about what they're going to do once they get older and they have so much more power on voting, on running for office, and other spaces in the political space, political spectrum at their fingertips. It's just... It's a very exciting time to be there, but I also would want to say that there are other generations that definitely are as aware, but I think it's just that the education does not really cater to them over time from it. When you have almost this, uh, the Gen X and even boomer populations where most of the products that are actually even being sold to them are so clinically driven, are so medically driven, there's opportunities to build products that also connect with them that are also purposeful, but they also just tend to be left out so much more often than not. On a side note, it's an example of a brand like Better Not Younger um, that I've been watching through there, which is you know skin and, skin and hair care. 
um, in the beauty world that is generated towards you know women over 50 where it's under that same brand mindset where you'd expect to find something from your typical millennial or Gen Z customer because they tend to be more um, aware in terms of sustainability practices, but it is dedicated towards an older generation. So I think that definitely that world of Gen Z matters to it in terms of the brand's practices, especially because they're going to become the biggest consumer over time. Um, but you just really can't forget right now the largest dollar holder um, and the largest spender in the family household at this moment. Do you think that in this era of the D2C channel and the low barrier of entry to start a brand and the more choice than ever for the consumer in brand, uh, that this is the golden age for brand? I definitely think so. Because when you're thinking about the golden age, you have these younger brands that, while they may not be able to generate as much market share uh, compared to their ancillary competitors, for them, these competitors, for them to actually uh, evolve and innovate, it's like turning around an aircraft carrier. And so these younger brands have this great opportunity to speak out and really pioneer what their industries, what their sectors, and what those areas should stand for. And because, again, you have a lot more powerful assets and powerful people speaking and echoing those same sentiments, they can be the ones that are leading the charge to it all. I mean, going back to Lola real quick, they were really the first brand that was taking on the fact that feminine products and hygiene were just considered as a taboo. They were almost considered a part of the sin clause that a lot of investors are stuck under, which is, to me, absolutely ridiculous. It's Besides the fact that it's already being packed as a luxury product, it just makes no sense to it all. And so when you have these younger brands that can actually push the conversation to it, and look, what's the best bright side to it all? We have these larger companies that can have a lot more power in the consumer space to also evolve, but most of them will either just try to copy it or ignore the entire conversation to it and actually end up hurting themselves in the end. You have the power of of social media and the power of the consumer also calling out for them as well. And by being silent is basically meaning you're complicit in the harmful actions to it. So definitely it is a golden age. I mean, the way that more brands are taken to various areas to speak their channels, I think we're, we're almost even in a way getting started to it all. Walk me through your due diligence process when evaluating consumer startups? Sure. So we are seed and series A focused. Uh, we are planning to lead and co-lead checks in both those areas. And really when you think about our due diligence process, it's cut down into the three P's that we look at, which is people, product, and pipeline. When you look about people and especially as a seed investor, that's ultimately the biggest foundation of our, of our thesis on due diligence systems, looking at who is filling up the roles of the operator, the marketer, the designer, and technician if the company does require some technology to do it. Most because we're focusing on products does not require that kind of role, but some, of course, if we're looking at more technology-enabled products. When we think about the marketer, we see who is the face of the brand, face of the franchise, who's pitching the company day in, day out, who can really go out and sell that brand to it. Um, you look at the operator who's working behind the scenes and is truly focusing on those day-to-day operational perspectives to it. Um, you might have a single founder business that is more a marketer than operator. And so we just look at the correlative person that they may have, junior and mid-level that they're bringing on to that as well. The biggest thing for us though, along with people, is of course the cohesiveness that they have between the founding team, but ultimately what we call the founder periscope. Now, a lot of founders are 
amazingly talented human beings that are genuinely passionate, genuinely driven towards being building the best successful company, the most scalable business that they can, they're building out of it. They have potential direct experience in the background through it. But what's also really important for us on our due diligence is this periscope effect where they may be the best and smartest person in the world. And admittedly, as a VC, the job, our job is to be the dumbest person in the room from it all. Um, and we're always learning from these people. But they're also ones that are always taking direction, that are always uh, looking for feedback, looking to make sure that they're making that right direction. When you think about a submarine, the entire submarine itself is a digitally power, digital powerhouse. It is technologically sound. It has the most up-to-date products and technology into there. But you're still attached with an analog option, which is this periscope. So you actually truly can know when you raise it up whether you're actually streaming towards the right direction or if you're headed for a wall. The best founders have that periscope. They're always looking. They're always taking extra feedback and direction. And arrogant founders, defensive founders, those who truly believe what they're doing is right and isn't, aren't going to listen to others, they don't have that periscope. And there is a very, very good chance they will run into that wall. When it comes to the product and pipeline side of things, we look about the completeness of both um, in terms of where the products are, looking at a little bit of traction systems. And even if it's early traction, I just really want to understand that the, the customers that they've been connecting with, what kind of feedback they've been getting through here, what's their strategy in terms of um, connecting with them, both what I call hardware version and a software version. Harbor and that like you're building future products, how you're updating your current product portfolio and software in terms of other marketing channels, other uh, connectivity channels, whether you're tapping into things like content commerce or attacking into influencers, you're tapping into other digital marketing strategies that, again, bring people back to that connection and bring back them back to that product or product lines. Um, what matters the most to me is how creative and not complete, but creative and mindful they've been building these different connections to it. Because um, some obviously work better than others, but I really just want to understand the justifications behind it all and actually how that also translates to the sustainability and scalability of the business itself. I've chatted to some investors about how what they're really looking for is that market expertise. How do you define market expertise? Uh, I mean, you have for, that you want the direct founders, expertise that comes uh, with, to, to right? possess it's, as a skill. There's, there's, you'll find ones in terms of no question that they have been working on building a division of this company within their current work statuses, but they just realized they've basically hit a wall in terms of where they can build it with internally within where they're at. And look, direct expertise obviously comes in handy from it all, but also can cloud a founder's judgment, can create a sense of tunnel vision to that space to it. I'm really looking ultimately for a founder that blends that level of expertise or even just the time that they've taken to, to learn and evolve and translate the, that evolution in towards a brand itself that they're launching from it, along with that just sense of creativity. When I think about my time back at that consulting firm, we had to think of very, very often outside the box because we were working with privately owned companies their information and data was not readily available. We had to dig and find that answers to it. And I'm just looking for that kind of founder who, you know, is going to be stuck in those trenches, is fighting all these kinds of battles, winning battles, losing battles, everything from there. And ultimately for me also as an investor, I'm going to be in that foxhole with him or her battling those battles alongside it. So I want to also not just, of course, 
find that sense of creativity, that sense of scrappiness across the founder, bringing that right experience and education that he or she's brought to it. But I also want to feel comfortable about two-way street perspective that we're going to be fighting those, finding those big fights together. Um, and the same way that they should be comfortable with me, I should be comfortable with them because we're in it for the long haul, you know, three, five, seven plus years um, during our holding period of the company, but even beyond, even if we're involved with them on different levels to do it. It's just, it's also not just for our investment strategy even to it, but also how do you make this ecosystem in the consumer startup world and venture world and the, start the startup and venture world as a whole, how do you make it better? How do you make it a better place ultimately? How do you, how do you think about good growth versus bad growth? And when should a uh, venture-backed uh, B2C startup optimize for profitability rather than growth? That's a, that's a really good question because there have been so much push towards absolute growth in the startup world in general. And fortunately, I think we'll start to see a lot more of a transition back towards it and clawing back a little more, just building good, solid, sustainable businesses. I think really, I would say post the Series A, you should be looking to achieve profitability, but like looking to a space where you have a sense of, of financial stability. Now, that said, there have been a lot of various ways and alternative ways of, uh, of raising capital that have now been available to consumer product startups, whether it's the routing space where you're raising money for working capital or inventory investments, where you have other ways of raising debt, you have alternative investment shops like the clear banks of the world that do exist, um, that you can take a short-term loan, you can, whatever interest rate that exists from here, but ultimately get to a position that you're able to pay it back quickly, build a better set of inventory, service your customers faster, and maybe not grow on a three times the speed that you might be getting from an institutional investment um, or venture investment in that, in that case, but to build a really strong, comfortable business. During my days at Brand Foundry, we often said that we like to focus a lot on those doubles and triples. And in a venture backable ethos with consumer, that usually means to invest in businesses that ultimately will get to 50 to 200 million in revenue within three to five years of the first institutional investment. So whether it's technically a seed round at that point. Now, that's a great space to focus on because even if you're looking at a 4X return or 5X return in terms of a sale, those companies are sell, will sell between you know half a million to a billion half a billion to a billion dollars uh, on that space, and you could do a great return systems to it. But there are those companies that can grow to 10 million, 25 million, 50 million, 30 million, etc. That over five six years over time frame that can be in control of their own destinies to it. So if you can build your business and you see the apex of a 25 million dollar revenue business, that's great. You might take more time in terms of the different ways that you're raising capital or growing the business itself. But that's also the system where, again, because market share is becoming less and less of an issue as a younger business, you have this bigger opportunity to build a strong company that could be acquired by a larger conglomerate that could take a larger stake from a private equity firm, but you're really still in control of your own destiny to there. So I would say post that A opportunity, but really just also taking the temperature of your business every quarter or so to recognize like what is that ultimate apex and what apex are you comfortable with also as an investor or as a, as a founder and as an investor, of course.
I've, I've heard from entrepreneurs that say they'll have an investor that maybe such as you guys that, that do lead rounds or co-lead rounds. And they'll say to them, listen, we'd love to invest, but we need a lead. Now, how should an entrepreneur respond to that question? I am so glad you asked that question because I hear it all the time. And it is one of the laziest responses I can see an investor do. Um, no offense to the investors out there. Actually, oh, you should take many offense to it. Um, let's be honest. Here. Let's actually let's be honest. Here. Let's not hold back. Because if you're a founder and you get that answer, you should respond to the investor saying, like, okay, I understand. Then who would you recommend that we should talk to that you like? that do lead rounds from it. Like who do you, are there any investors that you've co-invested with who do look in this space? If you're comfortable with it, would you mind helping us with a potential intro to them? So basically turn that conversation around to a warm intro opportunity and don't demand that from them. It's more about just a public look. If you really do like what we're doing, you would be willing to give that warm intro to that other venture firm that is a lead investor or a co-lead. Unfortunately, a lot of this world is a lot of hot potato in the venture space where the investor A may pass the company to investor B who may pass it to investor C, et cetera. And over time, you're going to find that right fit, the right partner to it. But the only way you can make sure that the hot potato grows so much faster and you get the right investor in the end to it and the right partners in your cap table, you just be completely upfront to them and be frank to it. Because let's also be honest here in that we as investors, we have the easiest jobs in the world. We can say no. We can weasel our way into hot brands and hot startups much more easily than expected. And being a founder is the loneliest job in the world. You have a lot of people who are rooting against you. You have a lot of outside forces that are rooting against you. You're going to find times where you're just sitting alone, working on your thing, working on your project. You're going to have times where the highs are going to be absolutely high. And we still need to do a better job on a lot of the people who are involved in this ecosystem that are doing, like that are empathizing with it and actually changing that empathy into real action. So while that's how I would answer in terms of when you get that response as a founder, but it also just speaks more to investors that if you're saying these things, stop. Just be more proactive about this as well. If you really like the company, it's not hard for you to go to bat for it in another space. You have an opportunity to help. You have an opportunity as an anchor point, as, a, as, 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 as one of those key holders in this space to, to, to make a real difference. It is, to me, so frustrating that more often than not, you get a lot of those empty promises. And if anything, this is a big open message to this ecosystem. Just, we all can do a little bit better. Even if we think we're doing a lot of work, we always can do a lot more. The people who, who do the best work on it are the ones who just we know behind are doing a lot behind the scenes. I can mention a bunch of investors who are as great examples, but you know, you'll also know that as founders to see who are who's fighting the good fight for it. I really love how passionate you are about this issue. It's really great. What makes New York startup ecosystem an ideal place to be, especially in terms of consumer? Silicon Valley in San Francisco is a wonderful world if you're building a tech-enabled company. And it's nothing against Silicon Valley, it's just the fact that that's what it specializes in. I mean, you have the best talent and the best resources when it comes to the world of technology. When it comes to the world of product, you're not going to find a lot of the right resources from there. You will find some great investors out there, Mavrons and the Lightspeeds and the Forerunners, so on and so forth, NEA, et cetera. But when it comes to building a company out from there, 
it isn't the best space. A lot of the best consumer companies that are there tended to have moved their way into Silicon Valley. The one that my favorite example is Allbirds. They've technically moved from New Zealand. New York and LA, I should also mention, are two solid spaces because you have a lot more of a better opportunity to test your product with customers, to have a better opportunity to grow and scale. And you have the right ecosystems of resources to help build your company to the next levels. Now, the reason why New York is the captains of industry that are, that are located from here. I mean, technically speaking, if you're building a business and you're going to go take it public, you're taking it public on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ located here. So when you're building a business that resonates across customers and you're looking for the most vigilant, the, the, even some in a way the toughest customers where you're getting the best and the most useful critical feedback, New York is a great place to start. And that's why you're starting to see, and you have seen the most successful consumer and DTC startups that have really launched, grown, scaled out from here um, because of the resources on business strategy and traction and that level of, of, of balance between growth and profitability that exists from here. SF will always have the best resource when it comes to technology, it's just the way that it's been, it's, 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 it's grown and risen over time. Los Angeles is also another hub that we really should consider to it. And especially for what you've been seeing across some of the most successful consumer brands out there from the honey, which we saw sold PayPal to the dollar shave clubs and honest companies and snaps, et cetera. But you also need to look about the right hubs that you're also listening to with your consumer, because for the same way that we're looking at the success of New York and even Los Angeles, we see places like Austin, like Nashville, like Atlanta, like Boulder and Denver, Colorado, that are building these great communities between consumer product startups as well that are growing and scaling as the way they should be. So I think it's just speaking to the mindset of New York about focusing on strong, sustainable businesses that you're also seeing across other ecosystems. Great points about captains of industry being in New York and um, and also the the consumer tech, what's happening in Los Angeles is pretty, pretty unbelievable. What is something that you would change when it came to venture capital? The egos. I mean, I spoke about it earlier and there still are a bunch of egos in terms of where, yes, it's important to have a personal brand as an investor and what people also recognize from you from reputation. But if you spend too much time trying to harvest it, trying to build it and almost to a system of arrogance, you see a lot of that does exist. I think more transparency, more empathy for the founders that just needs to exist across the venture world. It needs to happen more. The best investors, the best venture firms recognize that. And there are a good number of the advocates in this space. But I think, and it's also kind of the reason why I also stepped away in August of 2017 from the venture world. Well, I did step away due to my own personal health. It was also due to the frustration on a lot of this holier than thou strategy to it. I would just love to see less of it. And I think we're getting there. Founders are definitely holding them more accountable and holding people in the ecosystem more accountable. I think it's just this recognition of like how much of a real struggle that these founders are going through. And if we can just cut our egos down a little bit more. Really important also for VCs to have that empathy for founders. What is, what's one of your favorite books that has impacted you personally and one that has impacted you professionally? So there's actually one book that really hits both. It's Give and Take. It's uh, Adam Grant, the professor from Wharton, his first book that he wrote. And it's really about how we make ecosystems better as a whole, where you have the opportunity to truly give and not expect anything in return and just be a person in that world, in your space, in your respective space that is available, that is approachable, 
who wants to help, who is as genuine as, as he could possibly be. And it's that mindset where I try to hold through on a daily basis. I don't ever expect anything in return from people, but the only thing I would ever hope is that they either pay it forward or they have that sense of awareness to do better for others. When we're all climbing the mountains of our careers professionally and personally, um, far often than not, as we keep ascending the mountain, there's fewer people up top and there's a lot more people on, uh, below us. And there's a lot who might be struggling who just needs an extra hand. We need to spend more time outreaching our hands and helping them up with, even if it's a quick struggle or things we can help with, because if we all succeed and get to the top of the mountain as a team and share that bottle of champagne, it's a lot more fun than, than pushing everyone aside, trying to, trying to, to, to shoot up the mountain as fast as possible and basically where it's lonely at the top. There's no real success measurement for me on that level. Like you can make a, a, a bust ton of money and not tend to actually help others in your community, but you're going to be, that's of course looked upon as a terrible person, but you don't really have any excitement to share the spoils in. Um, what Professor Grant had really said about that with his book in, in Give and Take is it always just resonates to me. Just how do I become a better person? How do I become a better investor? And how can I make this world a little bit better in all ways? I couldn't have said it better myself. And so what's, what's one company that you had the opportunity to invest in, didn't, and in retrospect, wish you did? So there's two. Um, one that I think it's also just with a lot of, of, of respect and, and kindness to the co-founders, Jen Rubio and Steph Corey, was a way, had the opportunity to invest in the seed round. And they even had saved um, a section uh, for the fund uh, at Brand Foundry. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to get the firm into the end of it, but it's one of those where I remember just spending the countless amount of hours with them on the phone, chatting with things, watching them over from, from the sidelines. Like when we're talking about that cohesion that we looked through between the founder or the operator and the marketer and how they recognize each other's roles to it, to me, one of my favorite examples, hands down, is between Jen and Steph, where Jen controls the brand and the conversation from that. And Steph has been this absolute fantastic operator working behind the scenes, working day to day to make sure the business itself is well oiled of a machine. Um, of course, they have their initial employees of everything as well. But when I think about those two, just how cohesive of the team they truly are, it is amazing to me. Um, the one that I was really going to mention, which is always still going to break my heart because I wish, if I wish I had uh, even an opportunity to do an involvement type have money, personally, was Van Leeuwen Ice Cream, which is a wonderful ice cream company um, in New York City. The, I got introduced to Ben and Laura from a colleague of mine who was a banker at the time, who's now actually working at Van Leeuwen, and sat down with them. I love what they were doing. It's this amazing storied brand, some best delicious ice cream, what they were going next, and really, really nailed the mainstream appreciation of vegan and non-dairy ice creams um, that wasn't like exercise-driven like Hellatop, that wasn't you know basically flat in terms of taste. There was also this way, branding-wise, that they created a product that um, anyone could just really enjoy from it. They wouldn't actually feel like they're eating a vegan ice cream. They're just eating a delicious, you know, pint of cookie dough that have, just happens to be non-dairy. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to get to the end during the brand front years, but I introduced them to a firm called Blue Scorpion Investments um, to their colleague Goldtem, 
And then when they went from immediately from struggling to raise capital to oversubscribing their seed and their A and taking a private equity investment. So the company, I mean, they've, they've got over a dozen locations, I think even more now. They have their products all over grocery stores. Um, and so it's just really exciting to see them grow, but definitely still kicking myself to not being able to get to the end on that one. That's awesome. I really appreciate you, you, you sharing that. I know, I, I know it's never easy being the Monday morning quarterback and, and, and looking back. <laughs> uh, so what is one piece of advice that you have for founders of consumer companies? So while you're grinding and while it's going to be a lot of pressure to raise venture funding, to raise institutional funding, to raise these large amounts and spend a lot of money on marketing and all these different spaces, because a lot of the, think pieces say so, a lot of the, the, the competition says so, venture capital isn't always the right route for you as a founder. And I'm even saying this as a venture capitalist, you have to just be smart in terms of thinking how much you need, looking about the, and looking about the right partner on all levels, whether it's the investor, whether it's a marketer, whether it's a strategist, whether whatever it is. And because there are so many different ways to raise capital, whether raising some debt, for inventory, raising debt for working capital, whether it's just finding the right kinds of partnerships and collaborations. I just want a founder to know that you don't always have to go your typical traditional institutional route. You have to understand that we have a fiduciary duty to our investors. We have a three to five year holding period that we have to go from it. And we have to look for that exponential growth. And and VC isn't always going to be the right level. That said, definitely lean on investors and learn as much as you possibly can from them, even if they may not be the right fit or the right partner across it all. Because what is more and more fortunate these days is that a lot of these investors, not just for the fact that they have the right doors they can open and the right opportunities they can help you with, they have a lot of stories to tell and they have a lot of, you have a lot of investors who truly can be your biggest cheerleader, whether that is an angel investor or whether they can actually help you on the line. So always keep learning, keep leaning on them as well, and just always look for that right partner in the end. Samit, thank you so much. I think that's extremely well said. And um, this, has been, this has been absolutely terrific. Thanks so much again for, uh, for taking the time here. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's always great to be with such a esteemed company. Um, great to see a bunch of friends from this as well. You're building something fantastic here, Mike. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Samit, and I really appreciate him taking the time. If you'd like to keep up to date with Samit, you can follow him on Twitter at PE underscore feeds and on his website, Le Sank, located in the show notes. In addition for coming on the show, again, thank you, Samit, for all your help in growing the pod. If you'd like to follow along with me behind the show, you can follow me at Mike Gelb and at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, if you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app, as that would be simply terrific. Each review increases the exposure of the show. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed this one, and until next time.